Dads with Nerdy Ambitions, your go-to podcast for all things nerdy. I'm your host, Steve Pugh, and join with me today, as always, is my wonderful, my impeccable, uh, I've got Uncle Lola, i got a little bit of haterade for him, uh, Mr. David Perry, who is going to be going to the Star Wars Galactic Hotel. Did you, do you have a confirmed date with that, David? By the way? Uh, it's July of next year. I hate you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special episode tonight. Uh, we have a special guest. The amazing Sandy Peterson from Peterson Games is on the show. It is a pleasure. I was su- I'm surprised to hear that it makes you a bad person to stay at the Galaxy Hotel. I'm not saying I've stayed there, but uh... look, I'm not gonna lie. I'm just jealous. Jealousy is is I understand. Before we get too far into this episode, uh, Mr. Peterson, I gotta say, you are way better looking in person than you are in your photos. <laughs> so. Um, for the listeners, just so they know, when I was asking Mr. Peterson here how to introduce himself, he told me, hey, you know, you look way better in your pictures than you do or in real life than you do in your pictures. <laughs> You're not supposed and- to say that. <laughs> He's an amazing man. He's an amazing man. Solid 10. Yes. How many kids I am you a have? dad. All of my kids. I am currently actually more of a granddad with nerdy <laughs> ambitions because <laughs> I have five kids and they're grown up and they're not cute. They're adults. And so who cares about them? I don't care about them. <laughs> have, but I have 15 grandkids and they're great. Holy and, cow. Uh, they're much better than kids in case yes. you have kids. You have kids. You're a dad, right? Yes, I am. So let me I tell have... you right now that, yeah. that uh, w- with you and your kids, there's always uh, a little bit of you when they grow up. There's a little bit of you had to discipline when they were little. They haven't lived up to your expectations or they've or whatever. And so there's always a little bit of like, not hostility, but like tension between you and the kids. But between you and the grandkids, there's nothing but pure love. You know, you spoil the grandkids. You don't suffer the consequences that the dads do. And screw them. That guy gave you a lot of trouble when he was 13. Right? So, so the grandkids are best. It's, it's all of the fun. And none of the responsibility. Exactly. Right. David's a I granddad too. Almost zero grandkid diapers. They messed their pants. Here you go, dad or mom. <laughs> and then they have to deal with that. And when the kid's done, he comes back and plays with me. Yeah, and see, and you, you know, you introduce your grandchildren to things like slushies and ice cream, and you buy them toys that make noise and involve water. This is see. This is how people. Here's get a murdered, whole lot David. of sugar for you early in the morning, kid. No, and no. here's a drum. <laughs> And, and here's some permanent markers to draw on your walls. <laughs> All the fun, none of the responsibility. Not my, yeah. I don't know if this is a secret or not, but uh, you're a little bit of a H.P. Lovecraft fan. Yes, too. in fact, uh, the first full game I ever did in 1981 was the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. And this was also the first Lovecraft game. Was they are now really? super common to the point that I got attacked when I did Cthulhu Wars. One of the reviews said, usually people like, there was one, the one bad review I got was a guy who hadn't played it. And he said, this is bad because Lovecraft is overdone, which I kind of agree with. But I figured since, like, if I did the first Lovecraft game, shouldn't I get a pass on doing another one? But, uh, but anyway, that was the first Lovecraft game. And when I did it, literally everyone I knew who heard about Lovecraft had heard about Lovecraft because I had told them. So he was not well known. Um, the uh, the the Lovecraft Society, the Providence guys, do their, yeah, the HB uh, Lovecraft Society, an award, a, 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 a greatness in Lovecraft. It was like a full model of, of statue of Lovecraft. I got mm-hmm. I got one, and uh, Stuart Gordon got one. And the logic was that um, I started out with with uh, Call of Cthulhu, nineteen eighty one. This started seeping through gaming nerd culture. 
right? People started hearing about the, the game Call of Cthulhu. Even if you play role-playing games for any, for any length of time, even if you don't play Call of Cthulhu, you hear about it, right? And it's been around 40 years. And then Stuart Gordon, 1985, he does Reanimator, then From Beyond. And then this starts going through the movie geek culture, horror movie culture. And so both these different directions of geekdom and nerddom kind of went through the society and made Lovecraft famous. So yeah, I mean, that was their argument. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it's it absolutely. And it's you actually are celebrating the 40th anniversary or the yeah, this is your 40th anniversary of Call of Cthulhu as of yes. November 13th. Yes, just four uh, days ago. And yeah, I, I, I ago. launched a video on the topic, which was only two minutes long, um, say, saying, yay, it came out on Friday. <laughs> it was actually Friday the 13th in November 1981. That's when it finished. Did you do that on purpose? No, no, it just just happened to be that way. For the people who are not familiar with your work, uh, can you give us a little bit of detail about who you are? Starting You're... with the Call of Cthulhu role-playing yeah. game, the only full-time job I've ever had as an adult is game designer. Uh, unless you count the two years I spent teaching game design to graduate students at the uh, at Southern Methodist University. That was in 2011 to, 2009 to 2011. That was still related to game design, right? I'm teaching yeah. about games. Um, so I got my start there. I worked for eight years for uh, Chaosium Incorporated, in which I did Call of Cthulhu, which won lots of awards. I did, of all things, the Ghostbusters role-playing game, which also won awards, oddly enough. Um, I did. I helped develop the first version of the Arkham Horror board game, which the current version by Fantasy Flight is much different and improved than the ones we did. But hey, I, I was there at the first one, right? <laughs> I then went on to video games. And I worked on uh, uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. I wasn't the designer, obviously. That was Sid and Bruce Shelley, but I was there. Um, I then went to id Software, did most of the levels for Doom and Doom 2, worked on Quake, went from there to it, uh, Ensemble Studios, where I worked on all of the Age of Empire series, Age of Mythology, and the Halo Wars. And from then, I spent the two years in the wilderness uh, teaching uh, at a college. And now I have founded my own uh, board game company. So I've gone, I went, I started out on, on paper games, went to video games, I'm back to paper games. And my current company is called Peterson Games because why not be a giant egomaniac and name it after myself? So I, I, did. You know what? I, I, I can't hold that against you. I would, <laughs> I don't think Pew Games would, would come off as well as Peterson Games does. If you, you did know? shooters and you called it Pew Pew Games because you had your brother. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> what inspired you to create your own game company? Okay, I went from technology to board game because I, um, uh, it was kind of happenstance. What had happened is that I had, I had left the university because um, it turns out that I, I've always not been a fan of bureaucratic connections and it turns out the universities have super extreme powerful bureaucracies um probably because the things they are making decisions over don't matter and and they're powerless stuff like who wrote this book and so mm -hmm. they have to they have to expand their internal power to make up for that i don't know anyway so i hated that so i was i was sitting there with my uh savings getting ever smaller and said wendy we're gonna take a job working for an iphone company in india because they offered me a really sweet deal. It was like a six-figure salary and a part ownership of the company and my own apartment and my own driver because they said, do not drive in Hyderabad if you're a Westerner. That's certain death. So I, we got a driver. We had it all set to go. And just before I went, some friends of mine talked me into going on the Kickstarter. And um, 
promoting and doing a, a, a Lovecraft based game because I'm famous for Lovecraft. And so I figured, well, you know, I, I do have a pretty good name in, in the game. People have heard of me as a designer because I've been around for 40 years. They've grown long in the tooth doing games, right? So I'll parlay my name and the Lovecraft thing, and maybe this will get a couple hundred thousand dollars, and I can use that to boost my salary when I go off and walk and go to India for a year to do. I was planning to go there only for a year or two. And then the Kickstarter, instead of doing 200,000, did uh, 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 six times that much. And so I had to call the guys in India and say, hey, I'm going to form a company and try to run this uh, campaign. And they were sad, but, you know. That was in 2015, correct? That was in uh, 2013. 13, I apologize. The game came out in 2015 because it, okay. it turned out that they had to invent new technology at the factory to make my giant figures. And there was other slowdowns, so it was slower than I thought it would be. And in fact, all the mighty million dollars that we got from the uh, Kickstarter was gobbled up by in uh, in costs and by my former partners who looted it as best they could before they, they left. Um, but, you know, that happens. Hmm. But still, the remainder of the money founded Peterson Games and got the Cthulhu Wars out there. And then I had this game company kind of because I, I was going to do this game, you know, to support myself in India as a sideline. And now it became my vocation. And so I didn't so really plan. I didn't plan on it being me running my own game company. It just sort of happened. Um, so your side gig became your, your gig. Yeah. Well that happened before when I was going to graduate school at, at Cal uh-huh. in, uh, in uh, Berkeley, if you, if you're not familiar with the uh, jargon of the graduate schools and to support myself, I got a job typeset at Chaosium who'd I'd done some freelance stuff for. You know, and uh, uh, among them, Call of Cthulhu, which hadn't come out yet, and uh, and then I, I kept spending more and more times uh, editing and working at Chaosium, and less and less times on being a graduate student in zoology. And finally, once more, my avocation of gaming became the vocation of gaming. I dropped out of graduate school, which I'm not recommending to other people necessarily, but it worked for me. And uh, so that happened again. I went from video games to uh, board games, and I turned out that I really like working on tabletop games. Uh, which I'd forgotten since I hadn't done it for 25 years. And the reason is that uh, in a computer company, you have a giant team to satisfy that you must work with, which is, has its advantages. They're smart guys. You can bounce ideas off them. But sometimes it's nice to have a little tiny team of me and a couple artists and an assistant, you know, not have 50 guys I have to satisfy. I don't have to wait for the programmers to get the next build up before I try a new system, mm. which is kind of nice. I don't have to, uh, I don't have eight layers of, people in suits over over me because it's a huge huge money so they have to watch the money really carefully i can just do crazy things that i want to do like thulu wars which would never have flown before kickstarter when i can appeal directly to the fans and my games can come out a lot faster well in theory they can come out a lot faster than a computer game computer games take a year and a half two years my games may take that long but i can do multiple games while kind of in parallel you, and you're so. very aggressive with it too uh you have return of the po- uh return to planet apocalypse coming out within uh, next year as well as uh, is it next year or this year no, i think it's out now is it out now return oh shit. no it's not no are you are you talking about the uh yeah sorry yeah, because I, you I, have I, dinosaur I, 1944 1944 is coming out next year we got the uh, hyperspace coming out we have return to panel yep. apocalypse which is an expansion to the existing planet apocalypse um, and uh, of course, we are we, we, you know keeping through the wars in print, and then God's War is coming through, and then we have other games coming out. 
Your this games last are... year, I published uh, Cthulhu Wars Duel and Invasion of the Brood. And so yeah. a lot of games. Peterson Games is very aggressive with its output of product. It's completely amazing. I mean, you're kind of a boutique company famous for expensive luxury games like Cthulhu Wars. But the fact is, we do all kinds of games. We do card games. We do kids games. Yes. We do straight up role playing stuff, you, you know, like for D&D. Um, I actually, so... we uh, we actually uh, uh, used your Cthulhu Mythos, uh, the uh, Pact of the Skull. In our international tavern players, one of our players was a warlock and took the Cthulhu mythos in it. So awesome. yeah, we we absolutely. She very much wanted me to tell you thank you for that too. She absolutely Pretty loved awesome. it. <laughs> well, we try to be interesting and do things that haven't been done before. Yeah. Um. Why? So that I wanted to bring up this is you said your games are boutique. They're they're very niche for you know your the your purchasers, your customers. Uh, they're huge. They're like, they're big games. See, what? that's just what I said. I said that we're known for expensive luxury games, but we have lots of little games too. We have a game called Two Minute Dino Deal, which is a card game, which you literally play in two minutes. I did not know that one. That's cool. Uh, play, but, you can play with your kids. So let me ask you this. Why do large minis? It grew out of <clears throat> me doing the game that I was going to do to support myself when I went away to work in Hyderabad. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wanted this. This is going to be now. One thing you have to understand as a game designer is that I was a game designer from 1981 to 19 to uh, 2013, which is 33 years. Anyway, some huge mm-hmm. number of years, like decades, mm-hmm. longer than most of my fan, older than most of my hands. That right, and in all of that time, <clears throat> there was exactly one game that was that was entirely my idea from start to finish. And that was the game Hyperspeed, or actually Lightspeed that I did for Microprose. Every other game, someone came to me and told me what to do. And that was fine. I, I was able to make the game my own. Like even Call of Cthulhu. Like Chaosium said, we, I, I went to them and said, I want to do a uh, expansion for RuneQuest based on Lovecraft. And they said, now nah, we're doing a whole, a whole game based on, on modern age Cthulhu. And I said, oh. And then they said, you want to do it? I said, yes. So I'm always told what to do. And I'm not complaining. You know, the man told me what to do. The man paid my salary. He has a right to do it. But um, this was going to be my last game. I figure I'm going to go to India and going to work on iPhone games. This is going to be the last game I'm ever going to do that's going to be completely my idea or largely my idea. So I'm going to have it be my swan song. It's going to be the ultimate Sandy Peterson game. And so I said, among other things, I want the figures to be 28 millimeter scale so that I can use them in role-playing games. that's That's why they're big. That's smart. That's smart. Hats off to you. And every attempt to make the game smaller or cheaper, I fought against because I said, no, because this is my last game ever. I'm never going to do another, another game that's, oh, I'll do other games, but not games based on what my ideas are. Then it turned out I was, I was completely wrong. And instead of my swan song, it was my Phoenix of Rebirth. And now I do my own games all the time. So, so is that the, the large miniatures, is, do you consider that you're, to an extent, I, I understand you have lots of other games. Them. <laughs> <laughs> is that your calling card? for I, I guess games? kind of you know because i make large figures like in dinosaur 1944 the 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 the, the soldiers are 28 millimeter scale soldiers <laughs> well i want the dinosaurs to be 28 millimeter scale too so if i have a t-rex i want it to be 40 feet long like a real t-rex and you so, guys you put know, scale scale toward 40 feet yeah. not actual 40 yeah. feet and so our you... t-rex is this giant plastic figure that it, that your uh your two-year-old can chew on you guys at peterson games put so much tlc so much detail into your miniatures uh case in point look at dinosaur 1944 
one of the toys all the kids had was was bags of dinosaurs. Yes. And another toy all the kids had was bags of army men. I don't know if that's a thing today, but so if you're nine years old and you have a bag of army men and a bag of dinosaurs, like they're going to fight. <laughs> yeah. You know? And that it, might be why there were so many comic books at the time that were about soldiers fighting dinosaurs. Makes total There's a ton of Sergeant Rock was always shooting at dinosaurs, you know? So there was, so it just like was a huge thing then it's not now, I guess so much, but why shouldn't it be? So let me ask you this. What lessons did you take from doing PC games? Did you like Quake and Doom and Age of Empires? What did you lessons okay. did you take so from those and to put my, those in? Uh, so, here, so, so one of the things I took from them were I, I, I took techniques used in computer games and applied them to board games. Let me give you an example. My game Planet Apocalypse, which is a cooperative game, mm-hmm. I took I took tower defense and applied it to the board game. So there's a tower defense element. It's not all tower defense, but there was a strong tower defense element to Planet Apocalypse. Mm. Basically, you set up team ambushes to shoot the monsters as they come by. And tower defense is absolutely a video game idea, not a board game idea. Okay. I also, for Cthulhu Wars, which you have played, you may have noticed that the spell books work exactly like video game achievements. They do. Yes. Yes, they do. You you accomplish X goal, you get this. You do the goal, you get the Even if that goal is then failed later on because you lost one of your bases, doesn't matter. You got the goal, so you keep the advantage. So that's straight into video game achievements. Other things I did was that uh, um, the the way that we play tested the games at id and uh, other other companies, I have adopted that to board games. I play test. I've talked to a lot of other board game designers, and and I don't play test the way they do. Um. So I got that from the video game. One of the differences that I play test, I think I play test a lot more than they do with more groups. And I don't do blind testing, which they like to do. Uh, um, but in video games, you don't do much blind testing. You're always watching all the play tests. So I do that. And I have, and I, I do iterations every day and make changes. So that was a thing. And finally, I spent uh, 11 years at uh, um, Ensemble Studios basically balancing Age of Empires and Age of Mythology and Halo Wars. I was like, among other, I had other tasks, but one of the tasks was to balance all those games to make them, uh, m- make them fair. And so I took that into um, doing my own strategy games like Cthulhu Wars. And one of the things I said, well, if I can balance asymmetrical factions in uh, the Age of Empires, I, I certainly can do it in Cthulhu Wars. So, I, so you notice that a trademark of mine is asymmetrical hmm. stuff. Like when you're playing Yellow Sign, it does not feel like Cthulhu. No, you it absolutely each you feel like I, you're I a whole say. different sieve, but you also feel like you're super awesome. And if you can only get your act together, you're certain to win. But everyone <laughs> else feels the same way, and they're all correct. It's just hard to get your act together. We definitely live in that age of technology. Uh, we live in the world of VR, we live in the world of AR. You are a game designer, you are an RPG book designer, you do have it in digital version. Uh, where do you see RPG books and board games in the era of VR and computers? Well, um, you know, on my iPhone, I have all, uh, about 80, I, I, I bought, I downloaded a, um, a package of 80 Horatio Alger novels. He wrote in like 1860s, 1870s. And yet here I am reading these novels from the 1860s about how to make it in New York of 1850 on my phone. Um, so I read books on Kindle, but a book is an old fashioned thing. Right now there is, there is, tabletop simulator there is tabletopia to play board i actually play test my current game i'm working on uh, terror paths and starship captain on tabletop simulator with people all over the world i just i just played a game on monday with a with a a belgian a south african and a uh a british guy and we're playing a board game and it looks like a board game and it feels like a board game and the rolling dice 
and yet it is virtual reality. I think there's a lot of role-playing games going right now in Zoom. There is, I still like face-to-face stuff as much as I can get it. And my son, who's my assistant game designer, has especially been finding for lately. We're excited that our local venue is opening up again. Mm. So we can go there with our, our game things and do it. So I think that um, in the same way that movies um, have not, in fact, completely exterminated live theater, um, that uh, uh, VR and computers has not exterminated uh, board games. Uh, in fact, it's possible that it is partly rejuvenated them by the existence of uh, the fact that I can now play with people that I can't get to. You know, and that's fair. I mean, far away. We um, have a group in that's literally in England, and a gentleman that was in Australia, and we were able to play Dungeons and Dragons together. And yet, Dungeons and Dragons is an old-fashioned tabletop game, but you can do it thanks to that. You can you can also um, also I would say that one of the things that has made this a kind of golden age of gaming is that I can use my the mighty internet to find out if a game sucks, <laughs> or at least find out if if person X thinks the game sucks. Which you know, I can I, I can uh, there's crowdfunding which I'm not which uh, enabled me to get Cthulhu Wars done, which is a thing that could not have existed before high technology were. I was able to, Cthulhu Wars is a game that no game publisher would ever have done. It's super expensive to make. Um, it's a weird topic. Um, I hadn't done a board game since uh, Arkham Horror in 1988. So it was a risky thing, probably they would see. And who, and uh, so, and it has giant figures. Who can afford that? So I wasn't, so no game company looked into it. Some, I asked some about it. Nobody wanted to publish it. So I went on to kick on to crowdfunding and immediately I said, are you weird like me? Do you want this game? And they did. So <laughs> now, do you, do you feel like that your name played into some of that? If someone was a new designer that didn't have your, your cachet and your name recognition, is that viable as opposed to having to go to Milton Bradley or wizards of the coast or, or some other large company? If someone I, were just starting, I th- am absolutely certain that my name and reputation helped me make through the wars a success. I am not ashamed of, of exploiting that to the greatest degree possible. It's one of my assets, right? And it's not like, I, and I got it the hard way by spending right. 30 years designing games. So why not exploit it? I agree that if, that, that if uh, uh, someone with no, no renown had done a Cthulhu Wars, it maybe not have done as well. Uh, but the fact that even me with my renown wasn't able to pitch Cthulhu Wars mm-hmm. to uh, uh, a Fantasy Flight, for example, then it's got to be even harder for someone else, right? But I do see games on uh, uh, on Kickstarter and uh, Indigo Indiegogo that succeed that are people that I don't recognize. So it's possible. Okay. Um, they may they may require more more background than me. They can't just. Re- I mean, even I can't totally just coast on my laurels, right? <laughs> um, I, I have to at some point I have to deliver. You know, one of the things you also talked about before, earlier was, you know, Call of Cthulhu comes out in 1981. Um, I, I remember playing Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s during the satanic panic and all of that, all the yeah. satanic scares about about role playing sure. games, how how they were going to just corrupt the children. You know, and now it seems like Dungeons and Dragons and other games like that have are mainstream. They that are. They are that people who I would not have suspected played tabletop role-playing games and games like Cthulhu Wars or anything like that, all of a sudden, you know, their eyes light up because they're into that. How has that changed in your lifetime? Or, you know, what do you think the causes of that are? 
Well, um, I think part of it was that uh, was the spread of of video games in the '90s. Um, when I came out with Doom, uh, uh, for example, I had uh, Tipper Gore and Joe Lieberman holding my game up in Congress and denouncing it because obviously it was getting kids murdered all over the country. Um, you and, and Twisted uh, Sister. But, what? <laughs> you and Twisted Sister. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I know. I, I had allies, right? Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But but uh, but uh, I don't remember Tipper Gore and Ruben McCarry about Twisted Sister. That, that was probably a Republican thing. But uh, <laughs> for some reason, it was Democrats attacking my game for killing people. But uh, but the thing is, that as 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 gaming became more and more prevalent, more people got consoles in their house. Like no one was afraid of it anymore. You know, it just became part of the background radiation of of life in the modern world. And and so it becomes. I mean, you watch Stranger Things, and it starts right off with these kids playing D and D, and you're supposed to understand what that is if you watch the show. You know, in fact, I was I, I I didn't pick up when I first watched the show that it was supposed to happen in the uh, in the early '80s, and I picked up on it. I walked in a couple of days, and I picked up and said, "Oh, this is early '80s," because the Demogorgon figure they had for the game was the one that I had bought in the '70s that I had a copy of. It's like, hey, they don't make that figure anymore. What's it doing to this this video? So that that was actually a pretty good case of them like walking the walk because they went and found this obscure old Demogorgon figure by you know Grendier models. How did the pandemic affect Peterson Games? Massive returns from our distributors. Now, most game companies, including us, have a policy where you distributors can't return product. Mm. But when the game stores all shut down, the distributor said we're going to return the product and that's how it is. And we could have refused it and, and burnt our bridges or sucked it up. And we sucked it up. Um, we had a large French company that owed us a hundreds of thousands of dollars um, go belly up and then try to bill us for the translation. What they did is we published Cthulhu Wars for them in French and we shipped it to them. And then they delivered it to their fans and took the money. And then they said, Oh, we're bankrupt and didn't give us the money. So that was, that was pretty awesome. So we're actually technically on the list of creditors, but since it's in France, there's a long list of other creditors who are all French. So, you know, we're not going to get anything, but uh, so those things all hurt us pretty bad. Yeah. On the other hand, we also released um, Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for D and D during that time and got it promulgated pretty well. And that came in this year and we were actually making quite a bit of cash on that that can partly be up for it but i'll be but i personally will be glad when uh, uh people can walk into the open air without fear of uh of overt death and destruction because it has not benefited our company the way that some lucky companies seem to feel we i mean i guess you can say we got benefited because we were like first at the trough for government assistance when that happened because we have a really on the ball business manager um mm. okay but we wouldn't have had to be at the trough if it wasn't for the COVID. So, you know. See, I'm thinking indoors, you're more likely to buy more board games and more what, games. What happened is that our distributor sales plummeted, to, uh, it got very small, and our uh, direct sales through our website went up. I believe that. Okay. I believe that. Um, so let's go ahead and... Let's Some companies probably about- adapt to do it faster or smarter than we did, so they did it better. We're, we kind of figured it out by now, and now we're doing better with that, mm. you know? But uh, but initially, we were, like, trying to make the jump, and... Uh, You're getting... So you guys are officially celebrating the 40th anniversary of Call of Cthulhu. Uh, yes. So 
tell us about this beast. How did this come into fruition for you? Like Call of Cthulhu? I, I know you kind of talked about it a little bit here and there. But I did talk a little about it before. So let me tell you two stories of the dawn of Call of Cthulhu. So here's one story. Um, at the time, Lovecraft was pitifully unknown. Everyone thought he was a terrible hack. Okay, that was, if you heard about him, you thought he was a horrible hack. Some obscure guy from the 30s that wasn't worth reading because he wrote for Pulp Fiction. We should go off and read James, James Joyce instead, right? Um, or, or whatever. So, but I love, unconditionally love Lovecraft. Well, Chaosium also thought Lovecraft was a terrible hack, but they were really smart. Okay. Now, normally, when a game company is going to publish a license for a something that they don't respect, they will do a kind of tongue-in-cheek, campy version of it. You see this in movies all the time. It's why the third superhero movie in every series is usually bad because the original director is left. They bring in a new director that doesn't respect comic books, right, or superheroes, and so he says, "Well, really, no one can actually genuinely like Batman, so I'm going to do a tongue-in-cheek version. It'll be great." And then you get Batman and Robin, right? Okay. <laughs> Right. And so that's what happens. So Chaosium, however, was really brainy. And they said, we know we don't respect Lovecraft, but Sandy does. We won't tell him we don't like Lovecraft and he, we'll have him do it. He will do a great job and we'll just do the game. And uh, for, from what is designed. So they never told us that, that they didn't like Lovecraft. And I just thought, figured they did. And I did this whole game. And in fact, a funny story, the reason that it's set in the 1920s, Call of Cthulhu is because I thought Lovecraft, Lovecraft was writing for his modern era. He had airplane exploration of the Antarctic. He had submarines. He had ultraviolet light. He had the discovery of Pluto. He was very interested in, in, in the edge of science, right? But Chaosium also knew they had to like something about the game to be able to work on it effectively and enthusiastically. So what they hung their hats on was, we'll set it in the 20s when they were written. And the 20s are cool, which they are. And so they did the 20s source book and stuff and that kind of got them enough vested in the game they could they could do a great job on it which they did mm. but uh but yeah they didn't like call of Duty, they know i did and then my enthusiasm apparently seeped through the tech and later on the chaosium started liking lovecraft when they saw what a big hit it was they said oh well maybe it's better than we thought and they started reading the stories and then they changed their mind right but that's <laughs> part of it here is another part of the story so um the game came out um after months of delay on november 13th friday november the 13th 1981 the uh, while they were trying to get it done, the various printing presses at Lampa, which is the company we use, I don't even know if they're still around, but the printing presses would like break down and have weird things. The lady who was typesetting the manuscript had a nervous breakdown herself. <clears throat> Finally, it comes out on November 13th during the worst thunderstorm the San Francisco Bay Area had had in many decades. You could look it up. Oh so there's and during that thunderstorm, every printing machine basically broke except for the one during doing the call of food. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and, and then it comes out. And then from then on at Chaosium, whenever there was any kind of hiccup or slowdown or some odd occurrence, we always attributed to the curse of Cthulhu. Oh, that's the curse of Cthulhu hitting us now again. <clears throat> we called it that. But in retrospect, um, you know, like my... My career got launched with Cthulhu, with Call of Cthulhu. It, it, Cthulhu has has fed and housed and clothed me and my family for 40 years. So really, he's just been a benefit to me. So I don't believe in the curse of Cthulhu anymore. <laughs> you you, you did the is, right sacrifices to Cthulhu? I guess is... so, you know. There's a reason that I that in the same place that you may have a black velvet painting of Elvis, yeah. I have an um, a oil painting of, of Cthulhu by Tom Sullivan. 
Oh, that's awesome. I, I was assuming you were going to say like you had the Necronomicon or something over to the I side. Do have a, I do have several <laughs> versions of the Necronomicon, but they are sadly all uh, all fake. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. I've got them interested in reading you- the story. I mean, I'm told all the time by people that, that because of Call of Cthulhu or whatever, they read Lovecraft. But I think that 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 liking my games might get you to read a Lovecraft story, but then after that, it's got to be Lovecraft that keeps you reading. So you're like you're the gateway. Yeah. To- well, look, <laughs> I will go watch a movie because my because my uh, uh, one of my kids tells me it's good, but oh. but if I don't like it, I'm not going to watch the next movie by that guy. Touche. That's fair. So-, so Lovecraft is what keeps them coming. Lovecraft brings. Up, I might send them there, but Lovecraft hasn't come back. If that's fair. So why? What is your fascination with Lovecraft? Just okay. horror and monsters. The things I really like about Lovecraft. Uh, well, here I'll do it. In, I'll do a very simple version of it. Okay, conventional horror up to Lovecraft worked like this: you have people in the normal rational world, then there is some kind of horrific intrusion. There's a ghost. There's a serial killer. There's a supernatural event, and then the event resolves. And the survivors are back in the normal world, right? Mm-hmm. The way Lovecraft worked is you start in the normal world, then there's a horrible intrusion. And because of the intrusion, you realize that that normal world that you believed in doesn't exist at all. And then at the end, you can't go back to it because you now know that all of humanity is an organic stain on the surface of the globe that any moment randomly Cthulhu could wipe out, rise up and wipe out. Or you realize that that geometric, that the whole world is really just geometrical relationships that connect to other dimensions and it's, and none of it's really there, <laughs> you know, or you realize that all of humanity was a mistake by aliens that came to earth in the Carboniferous and spawned. And there's still remnants of them around, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. There's some awful thing, and that and Lovecraft, and then he just leaves you stranded in this new horrible reality. And that's why at the end of the story, the guy says, "We can't let anyone know." Not because he's trying to keep it hidden for some governmental reason, which is usually what they do in other movies, but because he's terrified that if humanity finds out, we will either go mad, or as he puts it, like retreat to the safety of a new dark age where we don't have to think about it. <laughs> Once you see how the sausage is made, yeah, exactly. Wanna... <laughs> that's, 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 that's something that is not done, you know. Plus, he has these amazing ideas in his stories that I'd never. I first read it when I was eight or nine years old, and I'd never read anything like this, you know. I hear I am reading uh, the Shadow of Rinsmith, and it's not just a monster; it's a whole town where everyone's a monster. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Uh, you know? Mine was that's Monster like of Madness. DOA. Yeah. You know, I had the fortunate experience, which is probably impossible to have today, of reading the story of the Call of Cthulhu and having no idea what a Cthulhu was. I didn't know if it was a creature or a word, if it was big or small or anything. I'm just reading the story. What's this weird alien word? It's probably not something. To, I'm not saying that people are worse off now. It's just I had a different experience <laughs> than what you guys had. Because when you, you can't read Call of Cthulhu without knowing who he is. That's true. You know what? That's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, No. Now, let me ask you this. Where can people find you? Okay. The way, the place to find me is you can go to petersongames.com and see my awesome stuff and buy it. You can sign on to my newsletter there if you want, and which comes out weekly, and that we give you pretty good, pretty sweet discounts and deals. Like currently, we have a deal where you can get our PDFs. Hey, there's an example of VR. We can get PDFs of our, of our role-playing stuff 
for really discount prices. You can also find me on YouTube as Sandy of Cthulhu. And I do a video every Friday about different topics. So like last week was Scream Queens, where I have a little quiz of identifying who this lady is and why she's a Scream Queen. The week before, it was me playing uh, Doom with my granddaughter, who is 11. So uh, so you can, so that's kind of fun to watch. Uh, so those are some... Oh, here's... I, I will end with a fun story about Call of Cthulhu for you. Okay. So... Um, a lot of people are unaware that Call of Cthulhu is fabulously successful in Japan. In fact, there are more copies of Call of Cthulhu sold in Japan than the rest of the world combined. It's that popular. And it's well-known elsewhere, right? I mean, there's yeah. in like 20 languages, but Japan is the biggest one. It is also way bigger than D&D or Pathfinder or any other role-playing game in Japan. It's the biggest role-playing system. So the average Call of Cthulhu player worldwide is an 18 to 35 Japanese woman. Huh. As a result, I got invited to Japan in, 19, in 2019 with my wife. To, that's, that's my fee for going to conventions. I say, say, what do you charge? I say, you must also bring my wife. And then she gets to go around the city and wherever it is and enjoy herself. And I spend my time in a nerdy little room with a bunch of other game geeks. <laughs> and uh, I score big karma with her, which is what I care about. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so we went to Japan. And, uh, and I do my usual stick, you know, I meet people and I, I have seminar. You know, I, I do, you know, I gave speeches. So I'm giving my speech. And then at the end of the speech, we have like 45 minutes or an hour of questions. So everyone has questions for me, like you do, for example. So <laughs> they asked me how I came up with the sanity system. And for those who have not played Call of Cthulhu, the sanity system is generally considered a pretty groundbreaking idea because it makes your character, it makes your players act as though their characters are scared. You know, because they're like, oh, they yeah, absolutely. Monster hide the rise. it's a really interesting thing because normally in a role-playing game, if you say there's a monster come out of the hall, everyone says, I got to see the monster. What's, what's it like? Where is it in the monster menu? But in Call of Cthulhu, you're like, I'm running and hiding because if I see it, I'll go nuts. So sanity is this huge deal, right? So they're asking me how I did it. And I talked a little about it. And then I said, I couldn't have done any of this Call of Cthulhu stuff without my, without my wife's support, which was true. And I had her stand up in the audience and everyone gave her some applause. Okay, and so far, so good. Then she sits down. Then after the... Uh, the speech a bunch of people came up to interview me they, there was like a, a there was a podcast and there was like a blogger and there was an e-magazine and you know the kind of things that that happened to me so i'm talking to them and they all had the same question they say so wendy designed the sanity system and i was like what and apparently the way that the translator had translated what i said when i said i couldn't have done it without wendy it had translated as wendy designed the sanity system <laughs> after the first question i decided sure why not go for it so so from then on whenever they asked me the question i was like absolutely wendy designed the sanity system so uh so now my wife is a famous game designer in japan at least in in various publications <laughs> is she making you pay residuals to her <laughs> she has not yet made me pay residuals to her um, but she tells me that the reason she didn't came with the sanity system is because I drive her crazy. So that makes sense. I, I, I literally thought that's where the story was going was something to do. You, she drives you crazy, but that's way better. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Peterson, thank you yeah. so much for being on the show tonight. It has been an sure. absolute pleasure. You're um, welcome. Um, as always, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are on Audible and Apple. Please remember to rate and review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so please like and follow us at DNA Pod and on Twitter at Nerd DNA Podcast. And as always, I am Steve, and joined with me tonight is Mr. David Perry and Mr. Sandy Peterson. Thank you, and good night. Signing off. All right. Thank you so much. You have a good one. You bet. Yog Sothoth Neblod Zen. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
This is Josh. I'm Lewanika. And I'm Glenn. At Tabletop Journeys, we bring more than 75 years of role-playing experience in countless game systems. But Dungeons & Dragons is where we call home. We formed Tabletop Journeys so we could do what we love. Create epic adventures in fantastic lands with amazing people like you. Listen to our podcast to catch our take on using the D&D core rules, homebrew content, and epic player-driven storytelling to make your next role legendary. Also, keep an eye out for Tabletop Journey's original content coming soon to DM's Guild.